The interview that you're about to watch encountered some sound issues, so we apologize in advance for that, but the points that were made were just too important, so we had to release it. Secondly, I want to let you know that we have a brief uh, deal for the BlockWorks Digital Asset Summit in September 13th and 14th. Uh, if you use the code NYC250, you can get $250 off to our institutional crypto conference in September, but the code only works for the last week of July, so make sure you do it there. Uh, I'm going to be there. Alfonso Pacatiello is going to be there. We're doing a, a macro interview conversation as well as the uh, regular crypto conference, so definitely check that out. Again, that code is NYC250. Thanks. I have the pleasure of welcoming two experts in their field, Nick Glinsman and Harold Malmgren. Nick is an expert uh, macro investor who's worked at some of the uh, best macro hedge funds in the world, including Brevin Howard. And when investors want to structure a trade, Nick is the guy that they call. And Harold Malmgren is an extraordinarily accomplished economist and uh, expert in geopolitics and global finance. He's worked, uh, been a senior advisor to four presidents, as well as the CEOs of companies such as IBM, General Electric. Uh, gentlemen, so great to have you here. Morning, Jack. Morning, Good Harold. Morning. Yeah, great to, great to be with you. Great to have you here, Harold. The first question I'd like to ask is, why is the economy slowing? You've been doing a lot of work, Harold, on the what you call the mountain of excess stuff, just the buildup of inventories. You know, for, for a while we had, there was a shortage of everything. You couldn't get your hands on anything. Now it seems to be like the opposite problem. You know, you're an expert in global trade. What do you think is the cause of this? And, and where do you see things going? So we're on the edge now of a massive slowdown in manufacturing. And that means the drivers of growth the, uh, that have been so powerful uh, in past decades, uh, Japan, China, Germany, uh, South Korea, less so, but all of them are now uh, experiencing no growth. This goes back several years because uh, at the second half of 2019, um, we had a period, everybody's forgotten, uh, where the IMF and uh, the World Bank and, and virtually every other organization said we were in, in a phase of synchronized global industrial slowdown. Uh, manufacturing was, was, growth in manufacturing was uh, basically dropping to zero. And now, why we've forgotten is the pandemic came and then we flooded the markets, all the, all the governments flooded the markets with stimulation. So it's in the, in the background. But now the pandemic stimulus is over. And what we have is uh, companies have continued to produce, thinking the recovery would come. And so manufacturing, making stuff, uh, to move across the oceans, uh, continued automobiles, uh, appliances, uh, machinery, uh, machinery like uh, railroad uh, um, engines. Um, but it turns out the demand isn't there. 
for a variety of reasons. Uh, of course, part of it is inflation has been outpacing incomes. Um, so every day, demand at the, at the consumer level is receding. But um, if we look at the export orders for the big, the big giant movers of the world economy, uh, the biggest, of course, China, Japan, South Korea, and Germany, all of them highly dependent on exports, the driver of growth, um, the generator of surpluses, uh, and uh, all four are experiencing right now a collapse in new orders and growing cancellation of old orders. So we're getting a mountain of inventory being built up all over the world. And the problem is nowhere to put it. Couldn't concur. Just back on that inventory point that you made, Harold, um, it, we were discussing the other day. So there was this very interesting announcement from Target that said, if people have ordered goods and the, the wrong goods come or they're not quite right, Target will give you your money back, but they don't want the goods sent back to them because they have nowhere to put them. Right. I think where we're really going to see it big is in the automotive sector. Yeah. Um, you know, we've had now a period where there were not enough cars, not enough used cars. Prices were elevated for used cars and um, premiums were necessary to get a new vehicle, or you had to wait months. That is collapsing. And what we're going to see by the end of summer or the autumn is uh, lots of cars and no buyers. Um, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if we reached a ridiculous point of BOGO, you know, buy one, get one free. And, and Nick, I could ask you, you know, you've seen and invested in a lot of economic cycles. Is the reason that we're seeing an industrial slowdown now, is it sort of just the typical reason, which is trees can't go to the sky? You know, if a PMI is at 60, meaning it's growing, the economy is growing rapidly, it's odds are, it, you know, it has to go down to 48, the economy can slightly contracting because that's just the way things are in the business cycle. Or is there something special about how quickly the global economy is slowing? And also do you attribute it to any cause? What's interesting, I mean, you often hear that phrase, it's different this time. And in fact, actually, if you look at the way the financial markets reacted to what was an absolutely shocking CPI data yesterday, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm writing my piece today, digging deeper into that inflation scenario, there's not a lot of good news because some of the slow, sticky stuff is making new highs. So I, I think what we've got, um, so the markets have assumed that we're gonna have more front-loaded interest rate hikes, the economy will come down much more rapidly, and hence you've got the, the break-evens are suggesting inflation's down, everything will be fine, and it's all a matter of timing. Well, it always is a matter of timing. Michael Hartnett, who's another expat Brit, we're all over the place, um, came out really succinctly with how he sums up this view, because BlackRock have just come out with a huge paper expressing this view. And he says... Um, it's basically deflation to inflation, globalization to isolationism, which I think is where Harold's going to lead us, monetary to fiscal excess, capitalism to populism, 
inequality to inclusion, US dollar debasement, long-term long yields above 4% by 2024. So, you know, I know that, for example, not speaking for Harold, but we're not of the view US dollar debasement. I mean, what we're seeing, you know, right now is um, contrary to a lot of the debasis argument, the dollar is continuing to screech higher. I mean, we're now nicely below parity on the euro. Um, then the question is how how long can if it's that hawkish how long can Powell carry the FOMC members to the point where he clearly could well break something and I suspect it may not be the Fed and it may not be the dollar it could just be Europe imploding on the gas situation this end of the mercantile mercantilist economic model that has to be thought about on a longer term perspective, because what happens to your investments if you're looking at what happens to your Bund investment if you're looking at Germany suddenly lost its surplus, is again returning to the 90s of six, the sick man of Europe, which is what, how Germany was defined. So there's a lot of imp imponderables, a lot of variables that I think people are not used to thinking about. And I think they will have a huge impact. Yesterday's price action was merely the market making the assumption Fed's going to tighten. They'll tighten as far as they're allowed to. And yes, Harold's right. There's slowdown coming. My view is actually the Fed's going to really tighten. They have to. Powell does not. He's, it's all about his legacy now. Now that he's renominated for a second time, he doesn't want to be remembered as you know, comparable to Arthur Burns, which was the the bad Fed in terms of the inflation that led to Volcker. And then, you know, this deglobalization aspect, Harold's absolutely right. It's going to be deflationary in, in the short term, but by definition, actually it's inflationary in the long term. How do we cope with that? And, you know, my, my, my practice on investing is to try and think of what's coming and then be able to focus on, okay, what are the first signs I'm looking for so I can get positioned accordingly? and then build the position from that point. Right. Harold, do you have something to say? Yeah. Um, among the things that I look at, besides uh, repositioning of the industry and the trade flows, um, I do tend to spend a lot of time thinking about what's uh, at the leadership level. Is there something going on or is there an agenda? And right now, I think, um, there are two things going on that are not fully understood in the markets. Number one, Janet Yellen knows the midterm elections are coming up very soon. And she knows that Powell has turned hawkish. So she's worrying about, okay, stock market's going to go down, but how far? Can we put a floor under it? Can we create um, some kind of sentiment? Now, I have not listened to her personally on her phone calls to large uh, investment funds like the Norwegian uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund, which is over a trillion dollars. But it happens, I know some of the people she of her phone calls. And so I can say she's saying to the really big investors, the mega, the mega investors, not you know, ordinary retail. Um, that she's, aim she's been saying it now for three months. I'm aiming at 
dollar index of 110 or more. Now that we were back at 103 when she said that. Um, I think that blows a lot of minds because why would she do that? Well, she wants the, the biggest funds to know that if there are buying opportunities in the equity market, the dollar is going to be really strong. So it's a good time to buy. Um, and it puts a lot of pressure on China because China is running out of dollar reserves. Uh, and China, China is, really cannot climb out of its present um, absence of growth based only on domestic demand because it's not there. So now on the other side, what's going on with Powell? Uh, Nick is right. Powell is thinking about how history will judge him. It happens to all these top level people. Sooner or later, they say, oh, I, what will be written about me? What will my grandchildren and the world see? Will I be just another uh, flunky or did I do something bold? Probably he's thinking it'll be another Boca. So he, he's going uh, on the side of really harsh, powerful measures. And so if you ask me, what's the next rate hike? I think it'll be 100 basis points because of the CPI yesterday gives an excuse. You got to kill the beast. Um, and he's going to try to keep going that way because he understands this will create recession. And he's not going to say it, but he wants a recession. He wants a really good recession, a deep recession, a lasting recession. He wants to kill inflation. So everybody's underestimating that in play. Now, Nick is right. There's a critical moment uh, just before the midterm elections when the members of the FOMC are going to be divided with Powell saying, let's keep going, more rate hikes. But at least four or five of the members are, um, let's say, affiliates of the White House or of the president. And so they're going to say, no, time to stop. Time to pause, time, time to begin thinking of, of stimulant. Um, so the, the voting will change. The question is, will there be a shift to a majority against power? Sooner or later, yes. And when he sees that, then he will make, he will make an adjustment. But not until he sees that the majority has shifted, then he'll go with the new majority. We can't judge that. But the election is really important to Yellen and to Powell. Both are aware that's going to be a critical crunch time for new decisions. Just to give a little bit of, of context for the audience, so yeah. we're recording this on uh, Thursday, July 14th, Bastille Day, as Nick, if you pointed out. Yesterday, we had a white-hot CPI print of 9.1% year over year, very, very strenuous. At the time, you know, as of two days ago, the market was pricing in a 75 basis point hike. And the Fed had said they'll either do 50 or 75, so a double or a triple. But everyone knew it was really going to be a triple. But because the CPI print was so hot yesterday, now the market is pricing in something like an 85% chance of a 100 basis point hike, a quadruple hike, which uh, I think is unprecedented, at least since, since the 90s. Or, or right. I, I don't know. 
but uh, yeah. So, so Harold, you think that hundred basis points is going to happen? Nick, what do you think? I, look, I, I think if it doesn't happen, if it's another seventy-five, that means September will be seventy-five. My personal yeah. view is, probably, you know, if the market gives him room to do hundred basis points, he will take that. Right. That's where he's very different to Yellen. If the market will give him room, he won't. He won't ignore it. Um, they want to front load as much as possible because there's this window up until that point where the White House affiliated members of the FOMC, and we know who they are. They, anybody affiliated to the San Francisco Fed is White House affiliated. So that would be Williams, Daly. Um, then you have Kashkari, who's on his own. You know, he's, he is naturally a dub. The swing, I think the swing person is Brainard, of course, because she is actually a renowned economist. And, you know, what, one of the things that's clear is that they've got the forecasts extremely wrong. She's recovering from being involved in justifying what was said. So I think that, uh, and she's also now number two, and she has to behave accordingly. And, and that behavior is the Fed doing its independent stuff. Okay, it, you know, and that that's that's critical. So I think Brainard is the one we need to watch. And the reason I say she's on side with Powell at the moment is when Bostich came out a month ago and said, you know, we'll, you know, maybe we'll have a pause in September if things get a little bit tricky. She was the one that slapped it down. No pause. Okay, so that was very important. The other thing that we have to remember is, and you know, from my context, I mean, everything uh, Harold's been saying about the Fed. And in, indeed, everything he, he, he said about Yellen, I've been hearing elsewhere as well as in discussions of Harold. And if you talk about the big investors, you know, I would include probably the Swiss National Bank, the Central Bank of Switzerland, yes. that is Definitely. actually yeah. the largest hedge fund in the world, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I, I, the one other thing that people are forgetting, and uh, Jack, it's our mutual friend Joseph, is very focused on this as well. People are forgetting about quantitative tightening, okay? And my, what I've been hearing is that the Fed, now that it started, they want it running in the background on automatic and all the rest of the nuance on policy comes via the interest rate cycle. So that's gonna be interesting. So I think the last thing you will hear about, if things get very scary on the economic front, and there's a lot of pressure applied to the Fed. The, the thing you will hear least about is the quantitative tightening. And I think it's just going to run in the background. People are a little bit concerned about that. What does that do to treasury market or the repo market, given that we've suffered bounce of illiquidity? Look, the Fed has created a couple of new facilities to deal with stresses in the repo market. But they still have a little concern that they're not quite sure how QT is going to work through the markets. And they've never I done guess, it before. They've never right. tried not, to not get to this two and a half trillion Exactly. All no. I can say is going right back to what I said at the end of last year and the beginning of this year, and I've said it publicly, I've said it on you know other video uh, videos. When I uh, we are in for much more volatility. And I am not talking the VIX, which has really become a, a retail thing. And I'm talking about volatility in the treasury market, 
volatility in the commodities market, which we've seen the consequences of volatility in FX. All the volatility measures are, are, are moving up. But the key one is the volatility in the treasury market has led to less liquidity. Okay. And you know, Nick, on, on this less liquidity, everybody's overlooking uh, the consequence of the strong dollar. Yeah. Uh, and it's diminishing liquidity. What it really means is there will be in most countries, even China, a shortage of dollars. China's exports have died, Germany's exports have died, come to a halt. And the way, you know, that's how you earn dollars, that's how you add your reserves. And, and uh, there will be an extreme shortage of dollars. That will have a massive impact, negative impact, on almost all the emerging market economies that are all heavily indebted in dollar-denominated debt. Exactly. So, so we're going to have, besides a recession in the U.S., which will be painful, but will come out of, we're going to have brutal, uh, severely damaging impact on maybe up to 100 countries out there, yep. smaller ones, the Sri Lankan, there'll be a lot more Sri Lankas where um, the system will collapse. Now, that will lead to credit market disturbances, and they may be big, but I think we're going to see uh, the repo fails. Uh, we've had a few recently, you know, at uh, some ridiculous level between three, three and 400. Uh, trillion, but I think we're going to see really rapid growth and repo fails, and then we're going to have all of a sudden unexpected insolvencies. Not not in J.P. Morgan, but in a lot of institutions in Europe and Asia. Yeah. And that's going to. So I think this credit market uh, implosion is going to be severe. Yes, agreed. It's a wipeout of the zombie firms, the zombie credits. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, it's interesting, Jack. Um, it's been easy for, since, since the GFC in particular, but even beforehand, if you could take out the GFC, it's been rather easy to make a case for what I call a sort of a somewhat lazy investment strategy and not really have to worry about changing your, you know, how you approach the markets. Uh, the carry trade being one of them. Well, the carry trade is in deep, is at, is at great risk at the moment, because when we have this sort of stress, and we're 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 now at 109.15 on the the dollar index, the DXY. When you have this sort of stress going through the system outside of the U.S., um, it doesn't take much for suddenly that DXY and the dollar to spike. You see a spike in the dollar against one of the major currencies, you know something's happened. There are spikes going on in the emerging markets. I mean, we're seeing, you know, at 4.53 on the Brazilian real, everybody's going, we're going to run into a contested election in October, November. So that's not going to be good. And this whole situation is going to get worse and worse. And if we are deglobalizing, suddenly we're at 5.46, almost 5.47 in a couple of weeks. And that's been a really volatile ride, and, and they've been extremely hawkish in Brazil. So yes. even these countries that are doing 
what Walter Bag—I found out what Walter Baghot, although it, it, it's actually pronounced Badget, um, would recommend. And being hawkish on monetary policy, they're still being punished. Like it's a, like a no-win scenario. Either they're hawkish on monetary policy to fight inflation because that's the big thing for them. Uh, currency strengthens because people think, oh, we've got good carry and they're being hawkish. Then now they're getting penalized for the impact on the economy. So you saw that with the, the reaction to the, the Korean one two nights ago when the, the Koreans raised by half a basis, half a percent, initial rally, and then it weakened again. <laughs> And you're seeing that with India, you're seeing this all over the place. This tells you there is something wrong. It also tells you quite critically, if you're an investor in the markets, trying to figure out what's going on, because you can have the right fundamentals and be hit hard by the flows. The flows, the flows may be illogical. I would say yesterday's reaction in the stock market was somewhat illogical. And we're now seeing, seeing the adjustment today. But the key thing is a market cannot fall unless people are long that market, okay? So these adjustments we're seeing in various markets is because people got long and they're forced to sell. You saw it with commodities. Now, well, I guess we'll get onto the commodity market later on. This big sell-off has, just to define the sell-off, people have been stopped out because there were an enormous element of tourists whether directly in the commodity futures or through ETFs, probably ETFs, that went into the commodities market because that was the place to be to express inflation. It's probably a better hedge than inflation on, you know, as inflation starts rallies because tips has been controlled by the Fed, for example. And they go, and the minute risk off occurs, there's been the selling, and the selling accumulates and it accumulates, and you've seen these huge moves. Well, huge moves like that can only occur if people are long. And if you look at the actual commodity players like a Trafigura, um, like a Glencore, and you look at what they're doing, and, and let's take crude oil, which has really had a rough couple of weeks. But there's something strange going on there. So you've got where the futures are trading, but there's such a demand for actual that the spot price for delivery is making new records over the futures price. So that- it Remains in, in steep backwardation, right. indicating a, a tight market, yes. Exactly, and eventually that will come through as all these longs have been washed out. So there's a lot of messages that you've got to take. Oh, you know, inflation's gonna come down. Okay, that's fair enough, but some of the sticky elements are making new highs. Um, and when I say sticky, I'm talking about rents, which is a big element of, of the- uh, core CPI. So all these cross currents going on. And I just think that this is where Harold, what Harold's saying right now is so key. Focus on the core th themes, the thematics. Everything else is oh. it, it, it's sort of noise, but you've got to keep within the cognitive threshold and figure where are we aiming for? What are the consequences? And use this volatility to your benefit. So all of this is a precursor to what's coming. Uh, what I, we can talk about in a few minutes where, where this is all going. But what, one thing it means to me is moving stuff across the Atlantic and Pacific, high value added stuff, long distances with lots of um, containers, 
that's going to die down. More and more production is going to be done in new places, more close to markets. And so this, uh, this deglobalization is going to have a really major impact on uh, economies and on stock markets, where the businesses are. Uh, and that, I think not many people are thinking about this, but I've been involved with this rearrangement for now uh, 40 years, directly working with some, some of the big companies, but of course Toyota being the biggest of all. And I've been deeply involved with thinking through where this is going, as opposed to where it's been. Harold, if it, you know, it's, I know this is extraordinarily nuanced, so forgive me for asking you to s- simplify it. But if I had to ask you what would be the most powerful reason for deglobalization, what would it be? Would it be COVID and supply chain issues? Would it be geopolitical? Would it be rising cost in places like, like China? Or would it be some other factor? Um, it's a number of things. Rising costs in China are important. Um, a shift to um, automation means labor cost is less and less important. It's becoming a shrinking element of, of what you do, where you do it. And uh, the supply chain um, problems that actually became really manifest with the um, uh, earthquake and tsunami in Fukushima was, was the big alarm for the, for the world because everybody, you know, the Japanese were the leaders in just-in-time inventory, and all of a sudden, whoops, all the inventory of microchips for the automobile sector were in one place. Uh, so for a while, we had a shift in fad to, from just-in-time to just-in-case. Um, have more sources. But now that supply chain problem got more compounded by all these pandemic port closures and um, interruptions um, um, with pileups of ships and and fighting with regulation, local regulation of ports. Um, And now everybody's thinking, why do we need all these supply chains? Why can't we do most of what we want to do to make something to sell, do it close to the end user. And so we can get to that if you want, but what's coming is a big shift in where we, what we make, where we make it, how we make it. And we're gonna be moving away from use of stuff dug up from the earth, uh, iron or copper or uh, all these metals. We're going to be moving to new materials that are invented at MIT or other places. Uh, More and more shipped to 3D printing where it's it's now called additive manufacturing. Layering materials so that when you produce, uh, let's say, a vehicle, um, you don't have to do big sheets of steel and bars of steel. You make something the way you want it. You don't have to bend it. You don't have to drill it. There's this whole new thing called vertical farming. But the industry providing machinery and equipment for vertical farming is booming. Nobody's even paying attention to it. But so everything, agriculture, by the way, 
uh, is being overlooked in all this debate. Um, when I was running trade policy in the White House, um, we had a declining interest uh, in the corporate world in the free trade because the big companies basically had um, put their roots in each of the other major economies and they didn't want Washington bothering them with um, new policies. So, but, so what we did was turn to agriculture because agriculture in the US is in every state, 100 senators are involved. Um, and it, you know, the deeper I got into agriculture, frankly, I was offered to be Secretary of Agriculture at one time because I knew so much about agriculture and I was popular with, with the farm groups because nobody paid attention to them. Um, but agriculture is highly capital intensive and extremely oil and gas dependent. Oil for diesel, uh, you know, you have, you have to plant crops, you have to um, harvest the crop. Yeah. yeah, you have fertilizer, you know, gas, especially for nitrogen, uh, and you have to uh, harvest, and then you have to move, you have to dry the product out for shipping, big ovens, and then you put it on trucks or trains, long distances, a lot of diesel. It's a huge consumer of energy. Um, and again, now vertical farming is coming to more right around the corner. Uh, we're going to see more and more of that. Um, so, so much is in flow here. Um, and the, the shortage of food that's emanating from this Russia-Ukraine uh, mess is forcing shortages throughout the world, particularly in broad areas like the Mediterranean, North Africa, um, but it has effects all the way through really serious problems for Asia. Um, so even that whole sector, agri agribusiness, food production, it's being transformed dramatically. So all of this is a period of change. And when you're looking at stock markets, you have to think, who are the innovators? Because the older companies in these fields are going to drop, out, drop away Right. Uh, and, and probably end up being zombies. So here's, here, you see, that, that's where I, my antennae come up. Okay, I completely concur. Then we have to, then the investment process, especially for long-term, some of these large pension funds and insurance, uh, endowment funds, they have to think about what's going to happen a couple of, a couple of years down the road. Where do we need to be? Because we've got so much money shifting it. We're not short-term. We've got to do this slowly. I've got a, you know, I have a particular view of what countries are going to be able to provide that, um, the target countries to benefit from this process. Mm -hmm. I think we're probably somewhat aligned, I think, because there's bifurcation between the West and China, but then you have to define what the West is. And it just strikes me that we're almost going back a period of time, maybe a century, maybe more whereby the rule of law is the key thing. You mentioned EU regulations are a real problem for many manufacturers. 
So on that basis, what would be the, obviously the US, clearly Canada by association, but which countries do you believe will benefit from this uh, onshoring process, this deglobalization, for want of a better word? I, I think it, by the way, coincides with um, what's going on in the crypto world, uh, digital currency thinking. I think it should be Commonwealth, you know, restoration of the Commonwealth plus Japan as the heart of a new system of rules-based growth and trade. And, uh, and it's going to be uh, anchored in, let's call it British law, um, you know, property law, uh, which doesn't exist for these rogue players like Russia. Um, and so I know it's, it's um, popular now to say, oh, rules-based order, that's, that's, we've been there, done that. But it, that's where business is gonna go. But this, I mentioned these digital currency studies going on. Bank of England has been at the head of working with all the Commonwealth and former Commonwealth countries, big ones all the way down to little ones like Malta. Uh, in this massive, you know, if we're going to move, why not move in parallel? Now, I don't know where it will lead, whether we're going to have central bank digital or something else, but, but there is a process slowly developing that involves a lot of countries with Bank of England uh, in the driver's seat. Yeah, which of course the Bank of England is a key player because Fed swaps are organized for distribution thereby. By the Bank of England. Yeah, and, and look, let's face it, most of the really big international transactions are London-based. Yeah. Harold, I, I take it from your comment that we're not going to need all of this iron and copper because 3D printing is going to be so much uh, uh, more efficient. I take it that maybe you're not as inclined to the commodity super cycle view and you tend to be a, maybe a long-term bear on commodities. But uh, am I right in that? And also, you know, what is your view on, on long-term commodity prices? And then also, is there any particular commodity that you will think be important? For example, one thing that a lot of folks talk about is how uh, integral copper will be for electric vehicles. Yeah, I know um, copper remains important because if you're relying increasingly on electric vehicles, then you're relying increasingly on the electric grid. You have to lay more wire everywhere um, you know, to support all these vehicles. And you have to put charging stations everywhere. But how far are we going to go with electric cars? Um, it's a fad, just like uh, solar panels on your roof is a fad. But where do I think we're going next? I will tell you that in the Volkswagen Audi complex and in Toyota, they believe we're going very soon to green hydrogen. And uh, there are really big uh, uh, investments going on in Australia to provide volume green hydrogen. Uh, it's not far away. Uh, Toyota's been working on this for 30 years, but they're now super optimistic. 
So nobody's thinking about that because it's not in the headlines. You know, in the US, we've experimented with natural gas for urban vehicles, you know, government owned, but we never really pursued it. We have no transition policy, but when you're out there and far from uh, our civilization in a emerging market, this is very attractive. Uh, clean burning um, and until recently, natural gas was plentiful. Now, of course, we have the, the ramifications of uh, Russian forcing Europe into a submission uh, by denying natural gas. Yeah. But we, we don't have a national, we have a Department of Energy, but seems to have no, no thinking people in it at all. No one thinking about, okay, electric cars, but what then? Uh, and where is this going? And you know, can we rely on electricity without finding new sources of electricity? So or without uh, nuclear. I've yeah, always thought you can't you can't have a an electrified system without nuclear. Is yeah, that, yeah. It's clean. Um, it's yeah. probably the cleanest. And I, I heard recently that you know very few people have died as a result of nuclear accidents. Well, the way we can build nuclear reactors now is very different. And among other things, there's very little waste. It used to be the problem to generate waste where you put it. And, yep. and the population, of course, is very you know, radiation. But um, now um, our power companies are not ready to make a big shift unless the federal government will impose its will on the states and say, okay, we got to change all the regulations. And what's interesting, if you think about the ramifications of Russian gas on Europe, where all these governments have gone with renewable and solar and wind, who provides all the solar and wind solutions? <laughs> it's China. So if you make it, you know, if Germany are now being criticized for the Russian gas dependency, if the world says solar panels, wind turbines, where are you going to get it from? China. <laughs> so that's a sort of a similar dependency that's just not going to work in the long run. Well, Harold, can you, because you, uh, Nick brought up China, can you tell us what does the Chinese leadership, what are their goals, right? Because for the past 20 years, it was export led growth, growth at all costs. We, we don't really care about anything else. But, and, and, you know, if you have an asset bubble to, to pr promote that, the, the better it is. But now, you know, there's sort of been a, a mercy killing of the of the real estate sector, as well as uh, severe handcuffs placed on technology companies such as Alibaba. The Chinese stock market has been more, more than cut in half. And, and, and as well, there's a zero COVID policy, which is severely crimping economic activity. Can you walk us through what the leadership in China is thinking? What are their ambitions and, and why are they doing what they're doing? Jack, may I just throw out one additional potential So What's happened with the technology sector and the, the chains of uh, capitalist oppression being put on them, all these limitations, I've been hearing, and you're beginning to see slightly the ramification, the same is on the verge of happening to the finance sector. Okay, so the, the, one of the most senior guys of the PBOC is under arrest for corruption. This guy set the financial regulations. And then you're seeing a few people, significant people at some of these medium-sized banks, none of the biggies yet, but 
if they do that to the finance sector, oh my God, <laughs> when you think of what's happened with technology. I will just throw that in before Harold takes over on China. Harold, over to you. Yeah, I have a, uh, an unusual uh, insight into China that goes back some time. When I was an academic uh, in graduate studies at, at Oxford, um, I was doing some really fundamental thinking about how far can you push centralization? Uh, and, um, you know, there had been a debate for some decades before then about um, communist style centralization versus so-called capitalism decentralization. You know, it's a very elaborate subject. And from Deng Xiaoping onwards, this has been an ongoing question. Now, Xi Jinping, I thought, when he first came into office, was going to be on the, on the Deng Xiaoping side of this, more openness for private enterprise, for innovation, for startups. But it turns out he became focused on control of, of the society, control of the economy. He became completely committed to centralized direction, which to me is a dead end because it crushes innovation and it leads to um, no innovation, even in daily routines. Um, it, 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 it's impossible to put everything at one point and say, make more steel or make more this uh, without uh, uh, complexity um, playing a role in disrupting everything. There's no adaptation. So Xi Jinping has now become uh, an ideologue for total control using social credit system and maximum surveillance, not only among every Chinese, but stealing data from the US and everywhere else. So they, they know everything about everybody. Um, but the purpose is to prevent you from deviating, you know, stay in your silo, do, do what's expected of you, but do not wander uh, the other side of town and have a conversation about a new idea, a new product. That's a no-no. So China is strangling itself. Um, and it, it reminds me in, in the uh, late 70s, um, in, in Moscow, I was invited to, uh, as an aside, I was there with Kissinger, uh, but I was invited, you know, would you like to talk to anybody I said, yeah, I want to talk to the head of Rusland. That's where all the centralized Russian decision-making for industry was. And they arranged that. And I had a, a lunch with this character. And I said, how do you keep track of um, the system that you know, you're giving the reports, but uh, how do you know you can believe them? And um, his response was, I'm so disappointed. Everybody told me you're a really smart guy. That's a really dumb question. <laughs> I said, well, what do you mean? He said, in a highly centralized system, it's simple. Everybody lies from the bottom all the way to 
Everybody protects everybody else and nobody tells the truth. Everybody says I exceeded the target by 10% or at least I met the target. They're never going to say I, I didn't meet the target or they end up in a gulag. So he said, the only way I can run the system is I have to get in an airplane every Monday and fly around to different sites and without warning saying, I want you to open the doors, I want you to show me the inventories, what's going on. He said, I've got the whole country in fear that I'm coming. And so more or less, I know what's happening. But he said, it's the only way you can really run a totally centralized system. I never forgot this discussion. Yeah. Uh, uh, I've got two questions for, for you, Harold, and I want Nick to, to join in. The first one is how this centralization, to what degree do you think it's, it's materially crimped economic growth? Because economic growth, you know, GDP year over year has been very robust in China. Do you, do you think that the, the data is not accurate? But yeah, Harold, what, what about Chinese growth that's been so high? Do you think it would have been higher if they didn't have the centralized aspect? Yes. Um, Right now, they're shutting down um, all kinds of innovative business models um, because they don't conform to how they want to allocate capital. Uh, but at the same time when they're doing that, they found that incomes are not rising. There is demand, the, the base of demand inside China is not growing. Um, and all and the working classes, they're putting all their money uh, not in, in the, these new companies because they know they're being uh, attacked, but they're putting the money in real estate. They buy an apartment, they buy another apartment, and another apartment. And now what's happening is you're seeing um, people have deposits at the banks and they have mortgages with the banks uh, and now they're being told they can't have access to their money for some reason um, or that the, um, the properties are collapsing in value. Um, so there's, there's from, from the below uh, boiling up uh, really serious unrest and you can see it on the internet with riots this is not going to be one or two banks. It's all over China. So this is what happens when you try to control everything and you don't allow um, um, innovation and exploitation of opportunity, uh, especially in a time of, of technology moving so fast in so many markets, not only in services, but in making things technology of production. So <clears throat> China, I think China is doomed to now to sit where Japan was when their bubble blew up uh, at the end of the 80s. China is gonna have at least 10 years, probably longer. Don't forget when everybody thought Japan was gonna be number one, Japan was buying all the real estate in Manhattan and Chicago and LA. I remember at the time saying, what do you think they're going to do with all those buildings? They can melt them down and move them? I mean, <laughs> what is the problem? But <clears throat> um, I think China is stuck. And this is going to, and if you look at their export 
bounds, you know, they, they, they are in the same pickle that Germany is suddenly in. No export demand, uh, no export orders. There are charts on the internet that you can find to show your export orders, and it's just none. So, and Harold, how is it that they have a lack of dollars? I, I sounds like I mistakenly put the China in the same category as the Fed, where like they just have so many dollars that they, they don't need to worry, right? Because they had trillions and trillions of FX reserves. How is it that yeah. they now are running out? I, well, because they're not bringing in new dollars. Yeah. And the dollars they had are being used as they go along. It's forgotten what is the dollar anyway out there? What's the euro dollar? I mean, what, what are these dollars? These are, uh, the dollar is collateral-based currency. Um, they need dollars to lever uh, investments, uh, the activities of the uh, um, Chinese development of, of their uh, um, Silk Road. Um, and right now they've been drawing down dollars. So now their dollar reserves are quite low. Now some analysts saying, oh, that's because they're divesting. They, they want to get out of the dollar. They want to make a new currency. They are desperate for dollars. You can see that, um, Harold, in the, it, the real estate companies that have had defaults all the defaults yep. have been on their offshore debt, not their onshore debt. Yes. Those are the yep. ones being responsible. Yep. And that's the expression of the shortage. Yep. Yeah. If, if I may, Harold, so I, there was a time maybe nine months ago when I did do a lot of research on sort of Evergrande. I, I'm out of date, but I think... Yes, that, that, that's true, but that's just because they don't, you know, they don't value foreign investors as much as domestic oh, investors. Oh. Yeah, but, but the Evergrande, you know, like let's say 90%, like some of the bulk of real estate debt is yuan denominated, whereas in your typical emerging market like Thailand or Argentina, Brazil, it's dollar denominated. So you don't have that sort of um, uh, original oh. sin problem when you have to owe tons of, you have to print tons of domestic curry to pay off debt denominated in a foreign currency. But remember, remember the Chinese do want foreign money, okay? So for example, and this is another problem area. So having had, had chatted to an old colleague of mine from the Salomon Brothers days, who's out in, still in Hong Kong, um, but talking to a few people that invest in China. So they've got, they're focusing on Connect, the, the, the Shanghai Hong Kong Connect. This was a big two-way process, but clearly it was to have Western investors invest in mainland Chinese financial products, equities or bonds. Okay. Now, if I'm a, if I'm a running a, a fund and I, I had I want I had investments in China, something happened, right? And I wanted to get get my money out via Connect, which is what the whole point of Connect is. I'm going to phone up my favorite broker in Hong Kong. However, my favorite broker in Hong Kong is no longer a friend of mine from London. It's a local person who really no. doesn't give a damn about what I want. Okay, He's not your mate, is what you're He's saying. He's not my mate, exactly. So this is another problem for them. They, and then you've, since you had a look at uh, Evergrande, of course, what's happened is Didi, 
the delisting move going on in Congress for for a Chinese quota come. It's all pointing in that direction. So I've been I've been out there saying, and I've been criticized for it. If you're a fiduciary agent running people's money in the West, then China is uninvestable. You can invest to express views in China via Chinese proxies. But to invest in the mainland in China as an international fiduciary agent, it's uninvestable because you don't know whether you're getting your money back. Look what they did to even Chinese entities offshore. Didi, what happened to the people who bought the IPO, right? They yeah. don't care. You're right. You're absolutely right, Jack. They don't care. But this whole process is a pressure that, that's increasing the pressure on their shortage of dollars because they do need dollars to operate. Most suppliers to BRI will only accept dollars, regardless of what people, people say about the renminbi and the future of the, the, the renminbi. Um, most, you know, all, where did Mr. Nickel in China do his trading on the LME? He didn't do it in, in China. So there's this huge need. And I mean, you can take Evergrande aside and look at Shamal or look at any of the others. They've all defaulted on, on their offshore. So, um, I mean, you know, one of, one of my team, Alessandro, has been really working on the, the real estate market in China. There's no bounce. I mean, even dead cats bounce and there's no bounce. There's no bounce. <laughs> and, and it's now being joined by pressure on other real estate markets. So why would China bounce given there's pressure globally on real estate anyway? Right. So, Nick, yeah, I, I just want to, while we're in the land of, of FX, uh, le- I want to go back to Harold's observation from his you know, friend who's an insider who, who said that uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen said months ago that she wants the DXY at 110. Well, she's she's got there. It's at one, 109 now. Yeah, exactly. Why might that be an attractive strategy for the US? Because I, I think of her as a dove and you know a, t- a high level of the dollar is tight oh, monetary God. policy. So, okay. so why is that attractive to her? And then also, can we draw perhaps a line of distinction where, because you know, I think 58% of the DXY is US dollar index is the euro, and then a somewhere a teen, uh, somewhere in the teens percentage is the Japanese yen, and both of those currencies have just, you know, they have mon- extraordinarily loose monetary policies relative to the U.S. So, to what degree is it a risk? Is the surge in the dollar a true risk-off move, sort of a dollar milkshake, if you will, versus the sort of just a pure interest deferential play that you know we sort of learned in Econ 101 class? I, I personally, I think it's primarily a risk-off move. Um, so yeah, what's Yellen's motivation? Harold, please correct me if I'm wrong, okay? I think Yellen's motivation is you're safe in the US dollar to the big international investors. You're safe. We want to, you know, we want to be a, a safe haven for investment, which ultimately means capital investment. And also, if you think of who she's been talking to, so the two examples that Harold said, uh, the Norwegian... Sovereign Wealth Fund and the Swiss National Bank. I know that for a fact. So you've got to think also perhaps the likes of a Temasek in Singapore or whatever. They've got huge equity portfolios. If the Fed is forcing its independence and say we're independent, we have to follow our monetary policy and we have to fight inflation, then the Fed has taken away the put. And the Fed, in my opinion, 
hasn't got a problem with how you know with the stock market. They're looking at other stuff potentially breaking, but the stock market, as long as it's orderly and it's been reasonably orderly, despite people saying, "Oh God, have we fallen three or four percent on the Nasdaq?" That's nothing to anybody that went through the great finance, you know, the GFC in two thousand and eight. Yeah. That was you know five six percent every day. Anyway, so she wants to, she is trying to provide a flow that creates support for equity, but. In, in terms of those public institutions. But those public institutions are also uh, capital investors. You know, can they invest in infrastructure? Yes, they can, and they do. So I think it's to support, supporting the dollar and making the dollar stronger from her perspective is something that is giving her comfort in, in terms of what she knows the Fed's up to. Yeah, completely agree. She, the Fed cannot have a put. Yeah. They're, they're on, you know, they're on one track, but she can do it. Yeah. By working with these really big funds, and and let's keep in mind, really big funds. We're talking funds that range from three hundred billion to well over a trillion. You know, you don't need to talk to many of these big funds if you convince them that they're secure if they stay committed to the U.S. market, uh, both both treasuries and uh, and the stock market. Uh, so it's her way of compensating for uh, Powell on the warpath. And by the way, it's yep. really, really painful for China. So that's the added side benefit. Also, I've actually heard, funnily enough, so there's this concern of what's the reaction in the financial markets, particularly with the sovereigns, having weaponized the dollar against Russia. Actually, what I've heard is to continue on Harold's theme there. I've heard shifts of huge amounts of dollars into custodians in the US from Middle Eastern sovereign wealth funds, yes. which is, you know, um, I suspect started during the Trump presidency has been encouraged under Yellen. Okay. Encouraged. So, yeah, encouraged. Encouraged. <laughs> um, I think that's also part of the, uh, the side discussions that have gone on with Biden's visit. <clears throat> and, you know, interestingly enough, you know, we, we saw the military leaders of the IDF, Israel Defense Force, meeting Saudi and UAE and Jordan and Egypt. That would take Harold down another interesting part, path for you in terms of we're all worried about, you know, the competence of the current leadership of the West. But maybe diplomacy and maintenance of allied relationships are not so dependent there. Over to you, Harold, because that's this is one of your big ones. <laughs> yeah. Look, we had a G7 meeting about some days ago, and who showed up? Trudeau, who has no power in Canada, but has everybody uh, really angry with him, from truckers uh, on up to just the people in the streets. Uh, we had Macron shows up, but unfortunately for him, he won the presidency, but he lost majority control of the, of the National, National Assembly. And then we have um, the German shows up, but in the background, his coalition is praying 
um, there are movements between the coalitions, even the CEU seems to be gaining ground again. Um, <clears throat> and the, the policies are diverging according to which uh, region of Germany uh, you're talking about, it's all falling apart. I mean, it's, it's the polar opposite of Merkel. There's no leadership. And then Italy, for Draghi, who's a technical expert, um, you know, people tell me that every time he's in a meeting with politicians, he's left bloody on the floor while the politicians are out partying. I mean, he, he has no power, so he has to resign. And <clears throat> Boris did. In the UK, we, we, yeah, Bojo resigned. He's sticking around for a few weeks. Um, but, and then we have a president who's getting older and let's say fragile and a vice president who let's say politely is not ready uh, to take a large role. Now, yes. let me pose you one, one more question about this leadership problem. All over the world, there has been an increased attention to the US leadership in the way that U.S. is interacting with the Scandinavians, Poland, Baltic states uh, in, the, in this Ukraine practice. <clears throat> but now we're coming to the um, midterm mid elections. Now let's say, hypothetically, Republicans regain control of the House Senate is a little bit unclear, but it'll still be a tight vote in the Senate. But in that period from 2022 to 2024, nothing's going to happen because the Republicans and the Democrats are not going to agree on anything. So we're going to have big questions. Why are we still in Ukraine when we got this problem in San Diego or in Chicago? Um, there'll be a lot of rethinking of how committed are we? Um, and then no, no clear agenda of either party for the next presidency. Republicans know they hate Democrats, they hate progressives, but they don't have some new theme or set of themes. So we're, we're in a period where I'm not sure what our leadership will do but it may very well turn more nationalistic, more isolationist, simply because everybody's busy with their own specific district or, or voting base or the money that they can collect, who, who owns that money. We're in a dreadful period uh, when in theory, our leadership is on the rise, but in reality, right now, if you ask me who is in charge, of what we're doing with Ukraine, I would say it's the US Navy. They are making all the decisions about interaction with the UK, Poland, the Scandinavians, the Baltic states. Um, they are the backup for that whole system. They are the protectors of North Europe uh, and, and the Arctic. I know nobody thinks about it, but that those are the people because they're organized and they have an agenda. Uh, but that, the, the amount of conversation between the White House 
and but this group is called the Second Fleet is minimal. And I, I did have occasion not long ago to say, why don't you guys in the White House spend more time talking to the people running the Second Fleet? They said, ah, oh, they're down in Norfolk. That's four and a half hours drive. I said, Jesus, you know, they got helicopters. You want to meet? They'll be here in 30, 40 minutes. But, yeah. you know, the, the, the idea when I said that was, oh, yeah, we hadn't thought of that. Harold, do you think that the, the current U.S. president, Biden, will be remembered as sort of a Jimmy Carter figure? Uh, and, you know, how do you, do you think that his efforts to curb inflation and fight inflation will be successful or is it sort of out of his, out of his hands? No, it's not. It's out of his hands and he doesn't have a team of people thinking through. He never had, you know, what were our problems when he became president? Number one probably uh, was um, the need for an energy transition. You know, how do we move from where we are without just shutting everything down? First thing he did was shut down the Keystone Pipeline on the day he took office. It was bizarre. Shutting down drilling, um, restricting leases. But no thought to, okay, what do we do instead? Um, no request from the Department of, to the Department of Energy. Why don't you ramp up? How do we bring on nuclear power faster. Uh, <clears throat> no, uh, no, no effort to deal with, you know, Department of Transportation has huge powers if you want to use them to clear up all these uh, uh, problems in the ports uh, that, that jammed up our supply chains. Uh, but, you know, there wasn't, a, so um, Biden will be known as somebody who continued incrementally with policies that were already in place, but did not rise to the challenges, did not generate a new team of people, did not bring in fresh thinking, um, and, and allowed the more extreme parts of the Democratic Party to have too much influence, uh, diverting attention to uh, uh, values as opposed to uh, output. Right. Nick, uh, because we're running low on time, I'm going to give you the, the final word, but I, it's a different question, which is the interest rate futures market thinks that the terminal rate, that is the highest they think the Fed can get, is somewhere around 3.6% in you know, January of 2023. What do you, do you think, what, how high do you think the Fed can get and when will it be before they have to stop hiking? I suspect there may be a reassessment with this next meeting, okay? Uh, and it, <clears throat> it will be higher. I, I, I suspect also that, in fact, Powell and, and those on, on that side of the fence are more Bill Dudley, 4 to 5%, but not. So if that's their intent, they'll be more front-loading and they'll try and get as much done as possible. Um, I, I, as you know, Jack, as I mentioned it to you, I have a bet with somebody for a hundred dollars. He said, I'll, I'll take the under on three and a half percent as a terminal rate. And I said, mine done. Uh, and then, you know, after the last Fed meeting, I phoned him up and said, I'll sell it back to you for $88. 
And he said, no, I'll, I'll run the risk. It's not worth, <laughs> worth the discount. Uh, so I think three and a half is the minimum. I think they'd like to get somewhere between four and 5%. But also remember, quantitative tightening is running in the background. Right. Harold, uh, what do you think? Yeah, no, I think there's what they want and what they'll get. Um, Powell has a passion. He clearly he wants to do what Nick is saying. I don't know if he can hold the majority together. Um, you know, the cohesiveness is going to be tested. Um, <clears throat> and the way the economy, the economy is weakening pretty fast. So um, what the attitudes will be three months from now, hard to judge. Um, and the, the FOMC voting will be much more attuned to um, the districts than now. So he'll try and maybe he'll get to somewhere like four but more likely he'll run out of um, enthusiasm among his colleagues a little before then. That's the, the swing variable there, Jack. It's how long he can carry the, the, the board members for. Yes. That's super interesting. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for a fascinating chat. Before we go, I just want to uh, give uh, each of you the, 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 the chance to tell the audience a little bit about your, your services. Uh, Nick, you've very kindly given me access to you, all of uh, your research at Intelligence Quarterly. Can you just tell the audience a little bit about uh, what sort of uh, uh, you know, research you write? Yeah, I write a, a global macro daily newsletter, just trying to keep things within a cognitive threshold. Th these are the facts, you know, simple, simple basis. If, if, the, if Powell's talking or Wallace, listen to what they say. You know, and actions speak speak louder than words, which is what what one of my colleagues, Alessandro, has been thumping the desk about in terms of um, Chinese fiscal stimulus. Where is it? Right? There's been a lot of talks about. It. So we try to keep it real. Leo does a Europe, European Daily Macro and covers it very well. Alessandro does um, the the Daily Asia stuff, and then we have Tracy Shushart uh, doing energy, metals, and materials uh you know reports every every week uh, will culminate in four reports a week in the end so we try to keep things real and informative and if there's anything that we cover that could be slightly we could be presumptuous in terms of we're finance people we understand we'll explain it you know so you can get there on intelligencequarterly.com and that's for public consumption we've got a lot of uh, consulting clients large institutions and uh, you know I, I weigh in on Harold as much as I can as much as I can I and and hope you know um, so we've got we've got you know, a lot more plans afoot yes and people can, can find and you on thank you for the compliment by the way that you you put up of course Nick people can find you on Twitter at Nick Glinsman Harold people can find you um, on Twitter at Hal Rez Hal's Rethink Harold, right. tell us a little, a little bit about uh, what, what you do. Well, uh, I did for about 40 years, I did a monthly commentary on what I thought was happening that was different from what everybody else thought was happening. But uh, I found that um, tiresome 
and the more interesting activities I found myself in were um, acting as an advisor with CEOs of companies, some kinds of CIOs, or the um, investment managers at some of the sovereign wealth funds. Um, and I mean, I'm from quite a while with Government Investment Corporation of Singapore, which is bigger than Tomasic. Um, <clears throat> basically, I'm doing what I've done for years, which is um, tailored advice uh, to, let's say, a new executive taking over. Where do I go from here? How do I revamp? How do I reorient? <clears throat> and uh, uh, certainly with, with the biggest companies that you mentioned, IBM and GE, that's exactly what they asked me to do. Rethink everything. Um, and uh, uh, sometimes it's a short period or meeting with the boards to walk through what they're thinking. Sometimes very brief. Uh, and the first person who brought me in was Henry Ford. Uh, asked me to come to Dearborn on short notice, and and I showed up in a meeting at 9 a.m., having stayed overnight in the Ford's hotel, and um, it was Lee Iacocca, and Henry said, Lee will tell you what he's planning. I want you to tell him why he's full of shit. And I thought, oh, you, you know, you, you sandbagged me. Um, so Iacocca held for us, and I did come. Uh, he had it all wrong. Uh, he went out in the house and Henry Ford said, I've been trying to find something to do that for years now. And he keeps telling me, you own the shares, but you don't know anything about the business. Leave it to me. And you were able to tell him he is full of shit. So thank you. Well, you know, how do I describe that as a service? Um, <laughs> but, Valuable uh, service. Some people need to be told that. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I have done it at high levels in, in various countries. Strangely enough, Japan, which you know was an island nation and changed very slowly um, through the post-war years, I, I became advisor to quite a few of the CEOs in Japan about rethinking what the, was really a domestic business into a global business. So. I can't generalize what I'm saying, but I'm a hired brain, and my my special feature is I make you smart, and I go out the back door, and you you get the credit, and I but and I would say I wasn't there. That appeals greatly to the most senior people, obviously. There we go. And, and Harold, if people want to get in touch to learn more, where can they fi find you? Um, well, I have a, an institute that, that was created um, on, uh, on the internet, Malmgren um, Strategic Institute, and that's probably the easiest way to send me a message. Okay. Uh, you find, find it's just Malmgren Strategic Institute. It'll mm. come up. Wonderful. It, well, it's, gentlemen. Headquarters it's, it's, yeah. in Switzerland. Oh, <laughs> nice. Uh, uh, Harold, Nick, thank you so much for joining uh, us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Jack. Well, it's fun talking to you, Jack. Terrific. Well done. Thanks. You too.
There is something that you need to be doing right now, and that is reading the BlockWorks daily newsletter. For top market insights and the latest in crypto news, you have to subscribe to the BlockWorks daily newsletter, and you can do so by clicking on the link in the description to this video or by visiting blockworks.co forward slash newsletter.